Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Response letters to the SEC's climate disclosure proposal are in, and one of those letters is PwC's own response. I encourage companies to uh, to prepare their their disclosures and to arrive at their judgments with climate firmly in mind. They're well served to do that because of the number of investors, asset managers, board members, regulators, and others who have clearly moved climate to the top of their priority list. That's my guest, Wes Bricker. Wes is not only the co-chair of PwC's Trust Solutions Practice, he's also a former SEC chief accountant. Wes has had a multitude of conversations with investors, companies, regulators, standard setters, partners, and many other stakeholders in the capital markets financial reporting ecosystem, and he brings a ton of insight into this proposal. Our conversation covers the hot topics from PwC's letter, ranging from data quality and adoption timelines to the operability of proposed footnotes and GHG disclosures. But beyond the hot topics in the letter, Wes will also share his big picture perspective on things like global alignment and the overall adoption of a final rule. And I have to say, this is one topic near to my heart because I was actually one of the authors of PwC's letter. So you'll hear me chime in with a few points of view here too. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Wes, welcome to the podcast. Looking forward to our conversation about the firm's response to the SEC's proposal on climate change disclosures. So thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thanks very much, Heather. It's wonderful to be with you and our audience. Great. So Wes, as you well know, in developing the letter, we spent a huge amount of time talking to just a wide variety, industry groups, preparers. We had previously in the fall done a um, study with investors, which we've actually talked about before on this podcast. Lots of points of view within the firm, lots of points of view to bring together. And definitely it was not always an easy process. But I know in developing our final letter, there are definitely some sort of themes that we focused on as being fundamental to our approach to basically all of rulemaking, but in particular thinking about this. So can you, well, I thought we could maybe start out talking about those. Yeah, thank you. Um, there, there were really three themes that that seemed to run consistently across the discussion about climate information. And the first is the importance of quality in the information. That what we heard from investors was that they were users of the information in constructing portfolio strategies, making decisions, allocating capital, deciding who to invest in or who not to invest in, or whether they were diversified. That data, they expected to be reliable. And uh, that really informed our first point about the quality of information. Whenever we talked with uh, providers of that information, whether it's corporates or third-party intermediaries, there was a confidence uh, in the quality of the information, but also a recognition that there's more to do um, in reinforcing the data as being investor-grade data. That is, did it have the right process and systems and governance and oversight? And that theme carried through whether we were talking with management, really at all levels, or members of the board, uh, audit committees, uh, and the like. And, And so quality was the first point that we landed on from all of that outreach, but also reflecting on the longstanding role of information that's really the bedrock of our capital market system. Our capital market system relies on uh, those who participate in it being confident that the information is not only accessible, but it's also reliable and sufficiently so to support their decision-making. That was the first point we led on. The second point that we led on was integration. And this was also a theme that came out of a lot of uh, the discussions we had, where uh, in in some cases, uh, companies have 
described corporate objectives, strategic objectives, like a net zero commitment. And they've described that um, on their website. They've described that in conference call materials and in a separate ESG report, maybe in a, in a response to an investor survey. And that was an important strategic objective for the company. But then in the investor documents, the mandatory disclosure documents, it wasn't always integrated. It wasn't always tied together. And, and, and that, was, that was then really the, the, the starting point for this integration concept because companies, as we engaged with both investors as well as management teams, it was clear that there was an expectation for a consistent, integrated perspective around strategic objectives. Maybe it's net zero and reducing the intensity of a carbon uh, footprint, but also growing the size of the business. And how do you fit those objectives together? How do those objectives uh, fit with a CapEx cycle, uh, CapEx investments, the time horizon? Um, how does it fit with a pricing strategy? and a product strategy and different customers and and products and, and services that, that are being delivered. It's that integration point that uh, that we kept hearing and coming back to. And then the last of the, the three themes that, that were really overarching here was really change management. How much time does it take and what are the what are the elements of the infrastructure for managing change? And, and on that, what, what we heard fairly consistently was there was a commitment on the part of companies to, uh, to prepare high-quality data, to integrate that data in their, in their corporate disclosures, but it would also take time. There were questions about um, how to really get consistent and comparable interpretations of key provisions. Um, and, and so we landed on a recommendation for an additional year in the phased approach for transition. But we also landed on an important recommendation that there should be a climate dis, uh, disclosure interpretive group. So what, what we heard from both investors as well as uh, companies who would prepare the information was that it was important to have a common understanding of what the requirements are and what the information is that's being reported so that in using it and developing, whether it's a trend line or a comparison, one industry to another or peers within an industry, that the analysis was actually comparable. An interpretive group can really accelerate that process and we've seen uh, we've seen the success of interpretive groups in a number of other areas where there's been large scale change, revenue recognition, valuations, reaching even further back, uh, the derivatives implementation group. Each of those had value because it brought together experts into a conversation about the meaning of different pieces of the rule. We, we believe uh, this, is, this is one of sufficient size, scope, and complexity to really benefit from an interpretive group. So Heather, th those were the three big themes, quality, integration, and change management. All right. Well, we'll dive in a little bit uh, into each of those. But actually, one thing, Wes, I realized I should have asked you even before we jumped into it is, you know, it, when we first got the proposal, I think the reactions range from the companies that maybe were relieved that they're doing all this voluntary reporting, they're getting all these different requests that this is going to bring some level of consistency. I think Maybe the other bookend was the people saying this is totally unnecessary, uh, you know, that there's other venues. If you need to report this information, this is not an important part of financial reporting. And you touched on this a little, but I do think it's important to kind of head on hit that. Why do we land more on the side of this is an important initiative, recognizing we have a lot of operational recommendations, but why do we think this is important? Really good question, and and this this is one where 
the market is still coalescing around how they use client information. We, we've heard consistently from investors and asset managers that they use it in developing portfolio strategies. We've also heard that they incorporate it in the evaluation of pricing for an individual security. But oftentimes, the way it comes into a pricing decision is through the discount rate rather than an adjustment of cash flows. And in the, the SEC's proposal in particular, the disclosure goes all the way from risk into the financial statements with the financial effect of climate. And it's those financial effects that enable investors to, to distinguish between the cash flow effects and any non-cash flow effects as they continue to deepen their models that address the impact of climate on pricing of securities. Now, all of that is in addition to the incorporation of climate into governance and, and how the company is organized to manage risk, identify and, mit and, and manage or mitigate risk, but also uh, the effect of the opportunities, the opportunity um, associated with climate, whether it's the redevelopment of products or services or technologies or, or scientific uh, exploration that address uh, climate more, more generally. So that's, that's how we saw the connection of the topic to the capital markets, to the financial statements, and to decision-making generally. And I think, Wes, I can probably add to that, that if we specifically then go to the, well, why in the annual report, why not a separate report, why not someplace else, then in thinking about that, if I reflect on all of what you just said, I think, you know, as a firm, we thought it was important that the information be presented in the same place integrated, we talked about integration, and then on the same timeline is the financial information. Because if you get some information at one point, some information someplace totally else, and they're not related to each other, that is not as useful for decision-making. It, it's a great point. And I, I would also add, it, it also raises the possibility of omitting material information um, in, the, in the reporting to investors, um, which of course gives rise to the possibility of liability. So uh, that's that's sort of a, a a secondary concern. Like the primary concern is uh, presenting the company and its uh, business prospects and its value creation uh, to stakeholders, including investors, uh, in an integrated way, decision useful way. But but then also uh, managing the liability associated with. Uh, not communicating all of the material information um, in the timeframes that investors need and expect. Well, and I think that's where we, we did hear from people, the ones that were on the side of they actually view this as helpful, maybe not every aspect of it, but because then it is giving guidelines for what is viewed to be helpful material, meaningful to investors instead of them trying to almost guess in an open environment. That that's right. You know, if you look at um, the landscape today, absent rulemaking, management teams necessarily go through a process of identifying material information about risks and opportunities that impact their their business. That, of course, includes climate. So, so it's not as though climate is not considered today. It is. There's just a wide range of necessary judgments and decisions that companies need to make in fulfilling uh, their responsibility uh, to all of those who consume their disclosure. And so rulemaking in this, in this instance helps preparers by providing the experience of investors, regulators, standard setters, pulling that all together. Um, into a package of mandatory disclosures. Now, companies, uh, some companies will will see that as raising the bar, and and they'll need to add disclosures. Other companies will see that as an opportunity to reassess. Maybe there's some disclosures that 
aren't as meaningful. So in all cases, uh, what, what we suggest to companies is that this is an opportunity to really take stock of the latest thinking on the topic. Take stock of what you're reporting, where, what the timing of those reports are, and really, really evaluate whether there's some right-sizing or some additions that would be important. So as you mentioned the reporting landscape, and I do think it's another sort of overarching discussion before we hit some of the detail, I think it's important to focus in on how the SEC proposal fits in with what we see happening globally. And we have the activity with the International Sustainability Standards Board. We also have the uh, activity focused on the European uh, Corporate Reporting Directive. So how do you see the SEC fitting in? And in particularly, if I'm a multinational, how would you be thinking about this? Really important question for a lot of companies as they think about um, those three big um, initiatives toward uh, climate disclosure. The SEC, the European uh, approach to corporate reporting, as well as the, uh, the standard setter, um, through the ISSB. Those are three huge initiatives that are coordinated, but they're not identical. And, and so for companies, as they assess where they're operating, as they assess um, where they're gaining um, investors and where their capital providers are, they'll need to go through an assessment of each of their reporting obligations, which have a different roadmap for compliance, which has different specific disclosure requirements, different specific um, assurance requirements. This this is a landscape that is, um, as, as we see companies responding to it, they're putting a lot of effort in just assembling the mosaic of requirements. Audit committees are asking that question, and for good reason. Like, who's pulling it together Mm -hmm. at a subsidiary level, at a group level, and then evaluating whether or not there's consistency, consistency in policies and interpretations, data collection, uh, whether they have the right expertise embedded in their reporting uh, functions, but then also whether they have the right scope of work with their assurance providers. Agree. And I think this is a key point, whereas we as a firm have thought about this, really focusing on alignment to the extent that that's possible. And also, I, I'll chime in for especially if there's foreign private issuers listening, we did uh, we are a proponent in our letter of allowing uh, alternative reporting regimes if they're deemed to be substantially equivalent. And I think importantly, not just saying, oh, it has to be one for one, but maybe you're doing TCFD reporting. So at least that can satisfy a, a chunk of what the SEC is looking for. And then you can add on versus saying, oh, sorry, it doesn't meet all sort of three big parts. So you have to start over. So hopefully We'll see some of that from some of the other standard setters too. And also I have hoping this is a place the SEC listens and, and does allow that because the original proposal does not include any alternative reporting. That's right. So Wes, then one point that you made, um, and I think this will start to jump into some of our other recommendations. So if I take a step back, we had our three overarching themes. And I think as we thought a broadly about our recommendations. We're focused on those themes, advancing them, but as well as focused on improving the operability of the proposal. I think there were some places that, you know, rightly so, we heard from a lot of preparers that they were not sure how they'd be able to operationalize it. So let me pull on a a comment that you made where you were talking about how management uses information and why that's important. Because I think one of the sort of starting points for the SEC disclosures is the disclosure of risks and then their proposals optional disclosure of opportunities and sort of also call it the front of the document or their new climate disclosure section. I know we thought about that a different way. So can you share your perspective on that? Sure. The, what we went back to was was a fundamental framing point 
for disclosure. And, and that is MD&A is written from the perspective of, of management, uh, management's view of how um, they see the business, how they see the risks, the opportunities, the prospects of the business, and then necessarily how they're indeed managing those to create value or preserve value, or also in the in the negative case, um, how value is uh, being destroyed. So it's that it's that management lens that enables an investor or even a board to understand how the risks and opportunities are converted into value creation and outcomes for investors. We thought that was the a good organizing concept for then thinking about the content of disclosure within any given uh, filing that that management should go through and, and assess what is the information that they're using to make decisions and where and why and what are the what are the details underneath that what are the techniques the methodologies the assumptions needed to understand that data and its role and its purpose in managing performance we thought that was a good organizing concept so that investors could then begin to compare managerial approaches and the effectiveness of those managerial approaches over time. Now, we recognize that that's not the only way of thinking about it. Others, others had a different approach. Like you could think about it with uniformity as an overriding objective where you would specify a set of disclosure requirements and uniformly apply those to different reporting entities and then compare uh, the outcomes of that disclosure. We, we thought the traditional approach of using disclosure to provide insight into the effectiveness of a managerial strategy would yield over time a very positive and self-reinforcing loop about what really works and enable then the system to move to higher and higher standards of effectiveness. So, Wes, one thing also I think that as we thought about this, this concept is familiar to companies because they're using this approach in management discussion analysis and actually in preparing the letter, I had a chance to go back and reread some of the SEC's historic guidance on MD&A. And it really is intended to kind of hit the same thing. How is management thinking about risk? How is management thinking about opportunities? So hopefully this won't be too much of a leap to incorporate a similar approach to climate. That That's right. And it also helps in addressing um, many of the concerns around materiality. That that there were there were questions uh, that preparers predominantly, but but others had raised about how to how to really operationalize the materiality concepts of time horizon and magnitude. With a management lens to it, it it's it's more straightforward because the organizing principle starts with what's important to managing the business. What what are you using for decision making? What are you reporting to the board for for their oversight and governance? What are you considering in your diligence with vendors or employees or investors? That's a starting point for then landing on what's the material information to decision making, and then helps to resolve. I, I think some of the questions that had arisen uh, from commenters and others who, who read the proposal. So as one, I call it criticism, I heard of this approach when we were socializing it with both within PwC, but then talking you know, to others to get feedback was that, well, what if the company's not even thinking about climate? Like what if that's not on their radar, then aren't you missing the boat and that's not going to be captured. So what's your reaction to that criticism? I, I understand that that criticism. Uh, to me, the objective of the disclosure 
is to yield a better uh, better insight into a company's value creation, which then yields better pricing of securities and, and the investment decision of whether to buy, hold, or sell. That's objective one. Objective two, it is to provide additional insight and information into the voting matters of governance, matters that properly come before uh, the owners of a company. And those two objectives, I believe, are best served by understanding how management is actually uh, working through the affairs of the company. And if indeed management is not managing the risk of climate, if indeed they have not identified important aspects of climate, then that should yield an impact in the pricing of those securities or in the voting about directors of that company. To me, the differentiation is really important because the objective is that capital providers need to make decisions about the effectiveness of the board and the management team. Yeah. So one point I would also add to that, Wes, is I was speaking to Hillary Eastman, who's uh, someone in the UK who works with reporting, and they had done a study of the first 50 companies that have filed their reports. I'll call it mandatory. It's not exactly mandatory, but the mandatory TCFD reporting in the UK. And one of their findings was that there were cases where companies that weren't that impacted by climate had a lot of discussion and then maybe other companies that maybe more, were potentially more impacted maybe had less discussion. And what the reason I bring that up is I think the other thing that resonated with me on this management lens proposal is it allows each company to right size it for their company. So if climate's not a huge risk, not put aside, like let's say you, you, you're looking at it, but it's just not a huge risk. You don't have to have pages of disclosure. If it is the large risk, you know, you incorporate it appropriately. And I just thought it was such an interesting finding that some companies were feeling like, well, even if it wasn't a big thing, I had to disclose a lot. And hopefully this will address some of that issue. It, it's, it's a really good point. And, and it also takes us uh, in further in the direction of a combination of baseline general standards, which one might expect to apply to nearly all companies but then also industry standards, which one might expect to vary from company type or business model to different business model. And that tailored approach, that differentiation is fuel to investment decision-making because it enables and accelerates a portfolio manager's ability to arrive at a diversification strategy or, or a weighting on a particular business model or even single name investing with greater insight. It's, it's really that, that point that I think is well served uh, by management really describing what is important to the business rather than a more uniform approach. That's how we've thought through it. All right. So let's move on. Two other big parts of the proposal. I want to hit both of those footnotes. And I'm sure all our listeners are aware of this, that the SEC proposed certain, and I'm going to use the word bright line because they use the word bright line disclosures uh, related to the footnotes based on a threshold of 1% of the individual financial statement line item. And that would be if it's impacted by severe weather or other natural conditions or transition. I would say, based on our discussion with preparers, that was probably the number one criticism we heard of, you know, its interaction with regular materiality. They can't track it. Just laundry list of of, um, criticisms, which I think we can understand many of them. Let me ask a question, a bigger question before we get into the 1%. Why the footnotes? Because I think that's the overarching question we also have heard. Yeah. The, The footnotes and the financial statements generally reflect the outcomes of a business model for a period of time. So I 
I, I think it's natural to say risks and opportunities should over time translate into a financial effect. The question then is, can you measure those risks? Can you measure those opportunities and translate them into financial effects? And also, what is the utility of that information? So let's start with the utility first. The, the utility of financial statement information, whether it's in the primary statements or in the footnotes, is that it enables investors to understand financial performance, financial position, and cash flows. And I want to just focus on cash flows in this instance. It helps understand the cash flow effects and the non-cash flow effects of a particular risk. We see this elsewhere within financial statements. There are four important risks that are prominent in financial statements, whether it's the primary financial statements or the footnotes. Interest rate risk, credit risk, currency risk, commodity risk. All of those come through the financial statements, of course, tailored to the specifics of transactions and events and, and management strategies. The proposal the SEC provided would add to that, effectively would, would add to that list. It would add climate and would then require an assessment of the impact of climate risk on the financials and the identification of the financial effects. So I think it's important to, to sort of understand sort of that starting point. What is the utility of that information? It's to identify the financial effects, which is then a proxy for cash flow impacts and non-cash flow impacts, but, but also to understand the level of infrastructure required to capture relevant data and the attributes of that data in order to prepare the financial statements and to isolate those impacts within the financial statement footnotes. And that's where the question of at what level would, would, you, would, would you calibrate the disclosure? The SEC proposed 1%. For some companies, they, they saw that as a bright line and far too small because that, that's not the level at which they calibrated, for example, their risk management system. That's not the level at which they were calibrating how they capture um, events and circumstances that have a financial effect. So there, there was a lot of input around the threshold, um, but what, what we saw as important in our contribution to the discussion was really answering the question, why is it useful? Why is it, why does it have utility and for what purpose? And then you can arrive at the question of, is it 1%, 5%, 10% or a different approach altogether? Right. And I think that when I can summarize them, once you reach that conclusion, then, you know, we our recommendation was to just supply materiality. So if the event was material, the way you define materiality when you assess your financial statements, disclose it. That's right. If it wasn't, don't. And I think that's also very operational and almost simple, maybe not simple to apply because materiality can be complicated, but at least, again, it's a concept all the preparers and the financial statement users would be familiar with. Completely agree. And one, one additional point, some companies within the context of their business model will enter into transactions that offset climate risk. Think about property and casualty policies mm -hmm. and thinking about what is the level of deductible or self-insurance that, that I would want to retain. Or maybe I don't have insurance policies at all. I'm, I'm, I'm self-insuring all of those events and that risk translates to uh, the equity holders of, of the corporation. All of those decisions come through the normal cadence of organizing the business and operating it. Um, it might not be labeled or described as climate in particular, uh, but it, it has a, a purpose of identifying the risk and managing or offsetting or, or absorbing that risk. 
All right. That's helpful. So then if we move on to the third leg of the proposal, that is disclosure of greenhouse gases and scope one, scope two, mandatory for all companies. And then scope three would not be required for small reporting companies. And then for other companies, only if they have a target or goal or if it's material. So quite a mouthful there. And I think there are three main parts of that proposal that we, again, heard feedback that people had concerns. So I'm going to run through all three of them. The first one is fundamental. It's organizational boundaries. And it's actually talking uh, to someone else who's involved in the letter yesterday. I said, do we ever use this term, you know, in regular financial reporting before this, <laughs> before this came up? And I don't think we did, but the concept's easy because basically what companies are being reported upon, how do you consider them? I would have previously called it consolidation. Mm-hmm. And the SEC proposed to say your climate information should also follow your consolidated financial statements. The GHG protocol, which is the, I'll call it the primary methodology that companies apply in measuring greenhouse gases today, allows other ways to look at organizational boundaries. And I think, again, a big point of feedback we heard is people said, that's what we're used to doing. That's what the greenhouse gas protocol developed. We want to keep doing that. Wes, what's your view on that? You know, I, I guess my view is um, following the financial statements. Um, that that's the that's the organizational principle um, that I I think helps to enable investors and others to associate the impact of greenhouse gas emissions with financial effects in the cleanest way, mm-hmm. and to to the point of the discussion, it's not that that's the only way you could do it, um, but that that is the traditional approach by which companies have organized their reporting systems. If you think about the risk assessment that a company would go through in identifying relevant risks and opportunities that's framed oftentimes in relation to a financial effect that's translated through financial statements. And, and so because that's so fundamental to the organization and the cadence and the hygiene of a company, that's why I've tended to come down on the side of using the financial reporting boundaries in this disclosure as well. Yeah, and I think another point on that, Wes, is that the greenhouse gas protocol was originally developed not for the purpose of, of reporting in conjunction with financial reporting. It was developed to help regulators who have broad schemes to reduce emissions. Mm-hmm. It's helped companies to, you know, to evaluate emissions in a different way. It wasn't designed for investors. And so, I think change is is hard, right? Like we don't like it when there's new lease standard or new revenue standard, or any of these new standards. People would rather just keep doing what they're doing. But, you know, in the end, are you going to get to a better, more meaningful result for this purpose? And I think as we thought about the views we shared in the letter and the recommendations we made to the SEC, this was a place mm-hmm. we supported because the users of the annual reports are investors. And so having a consistent presentation is important, I think, for their ability to use the information. That's, so. that's, that's right. And, and to just pick up on, on a point you made earlier, really important point. Over time, the definition of the reporting entity for financial statement preparation has changed as well. Um, we've added consolidation and the concept of consolidation. Uh, we had an important debate in the U.S., markets about off balance sheet and we added assets and liabilities um, so no doubt investors and 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 others will provide feedback over time have we landed in the right organizational boundary here um, and what are the trade-offs but again a starting point is the financial statements i think that's that's the right place to be All right. So let me hit the other two. So the second one is, as I mentioned, there's scope one, scope two, and scope three disclosures. And for those who haven't been listening to us, scope three really relates to your value chain. And I think in the conversations, at least I've been involved in scope one and scope two, I 
I'm not sure people, everyone is really excited to be disclosing it, but I haven't heard that same level of concern. I think with scope three, there is a lot of concern. There's a lot of estimation involved. Many companies aren't currently measuring it. You know, there's, there's, it's evolving how it's being measured and it's sort of a whole new landscape. And I think there are some concerns that it's not ready. Mm -hmm. So it's not to say never, it's just, it's not ready now for it to be presented in a report like an SEC filing. So how are you, how, how have you thought about this? Yeah, I've thought about two dimensions and, and just to your point that the maturity of scope three is much less so than scopes one and two, the measurement issues, the estimation techniques are, are different. Having said that, uh, within scope three, there are 15 categories of different uh, types of emissions, different topics. So for example, shipping and handling, business travel, cloud computing, each of those are, are categories of scope three. And so what I see in practice is that net zero commitments that include scope three will be specific to a particular topic that management as a corporate priority is managing individual topics. They might not be managing all 15 and indeed mm -hmm. all 15 might not be applicable or important mm -hmm. or material. So, what what I've seen and, and what we recommended is a more tailored approach to be more specific about what are the categories that are really important here that really give insight into management's decisions and how they're carrying forward a strategy and a set of priorities. I think that that level of precision could, again, help bring together the different points of view about the complexity of scope three um, by, by, you know, really clicking down the next level of detail and, and really getting to the most important information about scope three. All right. Well, I think it's definitely some good points there. So let me get to the last one. And in many ways, I think some of our listeners will think, why don't we start with this question? Because the question of reasonable assurance. So in the proposal, large accelerated and accelerated filers would be required to, over time, obtain reasonable assurance on their scope one and scope two emissions. And what's proposed is no assurance the first year, then limited assurance, and then reasonable assurance. Now, in our letter... PwC recommended that we should just go to reasonable assurance. And I think there's questions. Why, you know, why are we taking that point of view? Why do we think that's important? And I know Wes is something you and I have talked quite a lot about. Mm -hmm. So definitely uh, interested to hear, you know, your views on this. Yeah. Our, our starting point is, is really the objective of assurance is to convey confidence in the reliability of information. That's the objective. That's the relevance in the market. And, and so, as we saw the stair-step approach, we certainly understand the logic, uh, the logic of transitioning into a set of audit assurance over time um, can, can help spread the effort, spread resources. But it can also result in subsequent discovery of corrections material corrections that would have been identified or could have been identified if reasonable assurance procedures had been applied in those earlier periods. That was the, the approach that, that we really centered on, was to serve the objective of enhancing confidence in the reliability of information in a practicable, feasible way on a timeline that's realistic. So we, we believe that you could move from uh, preparing the information and no assurance. There may be an opportunity for readiness assessments and dialogue getting prepared for assurance in a later period, but moving from that to then applying reasonable assurance. So what does that really mean practically? Reasonable assurance means that the audit provider has gone through a risk assessment. They've identified what's important to the objectives of the audit. What are the important data flows? What are the important judgments, the assumptions, the techniques? 
And then they've done a test of the details. Is the information complete? Is it accurate? Are the assumptions applied in a consistent way? Are they conceptually sound? That detailed testing then contributes to the expression of reasonable assurance that the information uh, has been prepared uh, consistent with the objectives. Limited assurance is in the middle. It's inquiry. Asking, for example, um, have the procedures been applied? It's analytical reviews, looking at the information, seeing if there's any evident or manifest uh, differences that require further inspection or examination. But it's not designed for detailed testing, at least as an initial matter. And so as a result of doing less work, there's a greater risk of unidentified mistakes or corrections, adjustments. And we believe that if those were to uh, be reported in those in that next year, whenever the higher standard of assurance is applied, it would have the effect of undermining confidence and undermining um, the decision usefulness of the information across the market. That's why uh, we, we thought it was better to design and build for the ultimate objective, which is reasonable assurance, which puts it on par with the financial statement inf information um, that is really the gold standard of reporting within the markets. Well, and I think to that final point, Wes, in the investor survey that was completed last fall, I, I mentioned earlier, so almost 75% of U.S. investors who were surveyed, it was quite a large population, uh, said that they were looking for assurance at the same level as the financial statements. And again, I think just intuitively, people understand what that means. And, you know, people look to that as providing some level of, of reliability and quality. So uh, definitely appreciate your points there. So Wes, we, I have so many more topics I could talk to you about, but why don't we wrap talking about the, the details of our recommendations and maybe just spend a few minutes on what's next. And I was looking uh, yesterday, so we're recording this. So I, on, on June 22nd, there were almost 14,000 letters that have been received. So there's about 10,000, I'll call them form letters. So there's some level of similarity. I think there's over 30 forms. And then about 4,000 letters from, I'll say, individuals that included academics, corporations, industry groups, the like. The majority would be from individuals, but lots and lots of those others weighing in. It's a lot of comments. I don't know if it's the most comments ever, but that's a lot of comments. So what will the SEC do now? You know, what, what do we expect to see? Yeah, just to comment on that, I, I think it's incredibly valuable for the commission to receive input at that level, because that really reflects the relevance of the topic, but also the the intensity of views that arise mm -hmm. on this topic. I, I think that's that's the landscape in which policy making really thrives. The commission has landed on a topic that people care intensely mm -hmm. about. Some people agree with the proposal. Other people disagree with the proposal. And many have an alternative view about pieces and elements of the proposal. Mm -hmm. But that's really rich dialogue to have. Where does it go from here? The SEC will go through that input. The SEC uh, will assess whether it learns new information. The SEC will go through that information. They'll evaluate whether there are new insights, new information, different data that they didn't previously have access to, and then landing on a final proposal that the commission will then uh, proceed or decide to uh, hold off. I expect, uh, given what the SEC uh, chair, Chair Gensler, has uh, spoken routinely about, the importance of climate to um, to disclosure, that the commission will move forward uh, with some form of final rules. 
undoubtedly taking into account all of the input that's been received. But along the same path, uh, companies will continue to prepare disclosure under existing rules and regulations. But all of this debate, I encourage companies to uh, to prepare their their disclosures and to arrive at their judgments with climate firmly in mind. They're well served to do that because of the number of investors, asset managers, board members, regulators, and others who have clearly moved climate to the top of their priority list. So as companies go through their disclosure preparation, their governance, their oversight, having climate in mind um, in preparing that may land at new judgments about what to include, where to include it, the diligence, the procedures, the controls necessary uh, to be confident in the reliability of the data. So that's what I'm seeing companies and boards really do. This is a refresh on today's reporting, but also um, anticipating new rules coming out. So Wes, really appreciate all the insight. I think you gave us a lot to think about, and I know this is a conversation that's going to continue. So thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks very much, Heather. That does it for today. We are celebrating the 4th of July next week, but don't worry, we're still back with you with two new podcast episodes. On Tuesday, we're launching a brand new toolkit series focused on derivatives. And on Thursday, we'll bring you a special update on what's going on in the economy and the outlook for the rest of 2022. Wanted to make sure you had some information as you start to close your second quarter books. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for a newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From thought leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.